Today is September 11th, 2021. This is episode 138 of Back to Normal, so let's get started. All right, in this episode, I am going to be diving straight into part four of my Vote Compass review question answering uh, series. And I'm just going to jump right in. Um, other than to mention that I'm now finishing my third week of five weeks of parental leave at work and um, basically having lots of fun with it. Um, it's given me a lot more time to mostly spend with my family. I wouldn't say that I've paid any more attention to politics or to the news or to anything else. Um, the extra time has really gone to just spending time with family. And um, so with that, I'm just going to jump straight into Proposition 19, which is the first of the next set of six questions or statements, propositions from the Vote Compass. Um, once again, I'll, I'll say it again because I said it last week and every other week. These are just in the order that I answered them. I think they're randomized when you take every time you take the Vote Compass. So you might not have the same set of questions in the same order, um, or you probably don't statistically speaking since there are 30 questions. Um, but for me, this was Proposition 19 which is how much control should the federal government have over what Canadians say online? And I'm not entirely sure what the context of this question is, whether there's some specific story that um, is talking about the federal government having control over what Canadians say. I guess this is like a freedom of speech thing versus hate speech versus any other kind of uh, protected speech. Um, and basically, so short answer, I said that they should have about the same control as now. I don't think that control... The control that is happening um, is too restrictive, but I also don't think that it's too lax. Um, yeah, this is kind of an interesting question because there are some of these questions, like I mentioned every time, that could use more context. And I really have no idea, not really having any context for what the current set of controls the federal government has over what Canadians say online. As far as I know, um, like if you post something on Facebook uh, that is the most hateful thing you possibly think of as a Canadian. Um, I feel like there's like almost like Facebook would have more control to take it down than the Canadian government would if it actually got to that point that it was so hateful that the Canadian government had to get involved, but Facebook wanted to keep it up. I just don't see that. Um, and that seems like the most egregious thing. Like, I don't know what else you would possibly do other than like if a website or something was hosted in Canada, like the hosting company would be forced to take it down. There's not a ton that you can't say, like as a Canadian online. And yeah, basically, it's it's up to the, the corporations that are mostly the ones footing the bill for these services or, or providing these services, web services. There's not a lot. Of t there's not a ton of like decentralized, like totally decentralized, unaffiliated groups that are connected to the Internet. Most people, almost everybody uses some kind of hosting provider, which is, again, probably reselling from some other hosting provider. So, um, yeah, it's this is kind of a weird question, but all that to say, I kind of left it. The way I feel about it generally is kind of about the same as now. I don't think there should be a ton less um, control, but I also don't feel like there needs to be any a ton more. So that's kind of where I left it there. Uh, for Proposition 20, that one for me was, how much money should the federal government give to Canadians whose employment was disrupted by the COVID-19 pandemic? Now, I have some complicated feelings about this, because mostly because... Um, I think, and again, I don't know, because my, fortunately, very fortunately, my employment wasn't directly disrupted by the COVID-19 pandemic. My employment was not interrupted. Um, at no point did the business that I'm in, the government ever completely shut down. We just worked from home. So in, in a way it was disrupted, but not, not financially. And, but there are a number of programs that were used to support people who did have their employment disrupted. 
And one of the things that I kind of feel, um, one of the kind of things that I feel is really important context here that isn't provided, but like, because we're still just so close, we're still in the pandemic. Um, it kind of feels obvious that <laughs> at this point, a year and a half in, there shouldn't really need to be money given to Canadians if their employment was disrupted. Because at this point, if you're still working for the same place and you haven't pivoted to a way that you can still do the work you need to do from in person um, and, you know, have protections and all that, like curbside pickup, whatever the case may be, um, delivery options, if you're like a restaurant, there shouldn't really be a ton of people who are still having their employment disrupted. And if there are, it's kind of at this point, it's kind of almost on you. Um, I know there's like job training thing, like programs that you can take advantage of to to earn a little extra money. Um, but yeah, it basically what it feels like to me is at this point, a year and a half plus in, um, I put somewhat less as my answer, by the way, um, if you're not looking at the post where I post the, um, on my web, on the website, um, with this podcast, I post the answers that I put, um, but I said somewhat less money should be given from the federal government, um, to Canadians. But I also do feel like, like it shouldn't, this shouldn't be because your employment was disrupted anymore because basically no employment is disrupted anymore. Um, the, the restrictions that are in place aren't limiting employment. They're limiting capacity of, of venues. And like I said, there's been a year and a half to adapt and find a new job or, or have your job work in a different way so that you can still do it, um, through any possible disruptions. We know what the possible disruptions are. I do feel, however, that there is still some money that the federal government needs to be able to provide. Um, if employment is disrupted, for example, for sickness, um, like if you get sick with COVID or if you test and have to isolate or, or whatever the case may be. Um, and I think that program is still ongoing, but honestly, and at this point, a year and a half in, it doesn't seem like we're anywhere near being completely done with this virus. It just kind of seems like sick time should be able to be built into employment insurance. Like the EI program should just support this. It doesn't need to be its own separate COVID-19 program. It should just be, you know, if you test positive for something that means you need to isolate, whether it's COVID or whether it's something else, like you should get government support for that in the same way that EI would. And um, so presumably something like that is in the works. But um, all that being said, personally, I feel like um, less money needs to be given than than has currently been given the maximum amount of time um, from the federal government to anybody whose employment was disrupted by the pandemic. This is a very specifically worded question. So that's my that's my specific scenario question uh, answer to it. Uh, so the next question, the next proposition, 21 which is people should be required to show proof of COVID vaccination in order to attend public events. Now, I put that I somewhat agree with this. Um, I definitely think that um, a pa vaccine passport is a good idea, depending on the implementation. Um, the thing, the reason that I said somewhat agree instead of strongly agree is that like public events to me have a certain connotation. Um, yeah, basically this question has no context and we're all thinking like, so much of the time about how we're going to be attending events based on vaccination, based on all that stuff, especially families that have kids who can't be vaccinated yet. Um, you know, it's, this is a very complicated question. I think there are certain public events, public places that you definitely should have to prove vaccination status to be able to go to, or at least demonstrate vaccination status through a passport or whatever the case may be. Um, yeah. But I think there are certain services that realistically you can't like you because you can't force somebody to get vaccinated no matter what there are certain basic services that need to be able to be provided even if you can't prove vaccination um so i'm thinking of like 
passport renewal, driver's license renewal, all those kinds of basic provincial federal services, uh, municipal services. I'm sure I'm sure there are some, but I can't really think of any that would need to happen in person. But obviously, in those cases, you need to you need to demonstrate that you are either taking precautions to keep the people working there safe um, or that you're taking you have some reason to not get the vaccination. Like at this point, vaccine hesitancy is not really a realistic thing to to hang your hat on um, for people who, you know, otherwise want to attend public events. If you're saying I can't be vaccinated um, I can't think of like if you have an allergy or something to the shot, like there's there's other shots that have different allergens, like you can figure something out um, at this point. It's like it's vaccine hesitancy that are that is the main reason why people are not getting vaccinated. And um, yeah, that's not a good reason to <laughs> like you shouldn't be able to attend public events just because you're hesitant. Um, so, yeah, all that somewhat agree. I would strongly agree if it said to attend, you know, most events or like like restaurants bars if it's specified like restaurants bars gyms sporting events like those kinds of events um so if if it is saying that if that's the intent of this question then i would change it to strongly agree so proposition 22 is how much should the federal government make individual canadians pay for every ton of greenhouse gas they emit through fossil fuel consumption this to me um should not be i don't see how you could possibly mandate this on an individual level um, really, the only thing I can see happening is like increasing the I guess it, this is increasing the gasoline tax because um, it's already quite high. Um, it does seem like the kind of thing that you could just say, you know, we're going to install we're going to put in um, a tax on on fossil fuels that ramps up over time, like over 10 years by 10 years, it's going to be like 500 percent what it is now the cost to like really um, emphasize the importance to people that you should be using fewer fossil fuels in fewer ways in your house, in your, in your personal life, whether it's, whether it's your car, whether it's your home, um, all those kinds of things. And so, yeah, I do think that I, I answered this question. I, uh, I gave an answer of somewhat more. So the federal government should make individual Canadians pay somewhat more, but I do think that there is much more onus on the, the companies, the corporations that still are digging up and purifying whatever produ uh, producing the fossil fuels for consumption they should be required to put in more money they should i mean first of all like this is a complicated question but first of all i don't think that um these companies should be subsidized for their energy energy production i think that we need to really quickly move away like urgently move away from greenhouse gases um in terms of energy production in our economy and um so i do think the corporations have a bigger responsibility to be shouldering the burden for these the costs of the environmental costs and and financial costs for greenhouse gases but as well there is some um like when it comes to there's no way to really tax or or um charge corporations for greenhouse gases like the the, the fossil fuels that produce greenhouse gases um there's no real way to charge them without them being able to pass the cost on to customers so like customers are being charged more if corporations are being taxed more like it's this is this is just how it's going to work and so honestly, at this point, whether whether or not you answer this specific question with more or less or about the same, um, it doesn't really get to like, no matter what you do, unless the country as a whole is basically saying, screw the environment, we're just going to keep burning fossil fuels as much as we need to whenever we need to without any thought about the consequences, um, like individual people are going to pay more per ton of greenhouse gas they emit. Um, whether it's happening at the consumer level or whether it's happening at the industrial level, the corporate level. Um, so yeah, 
I left it at somewhat more. They should definitely be paying more um, for every ton they admit. Like the, that, that carbon tax needs to be higher in whatever way it's charged. Proposition 23 is the federal government should guarantee a minimum income for all Canadians, Canadian adults, regardless of whether or not they have a job. Um, now, I feel very strongly about this. I have done a ton of work in the past, um, research and, and that kind of thing on minimum income, basically the idea of basic income. And I very strongly agree with this, this proposition. I, I think the federal government should guarantee a minimum income. And I've actually done a lot of research to support, like provide evidence that to support this idea that it would work financially, that it would work for everything. Um, and basically the idea here is that um, the idea that I have, the way that I would implement basic income if I was given the chance in Canada is I would basically look at the amount of money that every single person, the gross amount of money that every single person brings in in Canada. And effectively, I would take a percentage of everybody, I would add a tax, which is a percentage of everybody's gross income um, on top of all the other kinds of taxes that you pay. And it would be ta it would be a, basically a, a percentage of your income that would be flat across the entire um yeah across the entire spectrum of incomes and that pool of money would be redistributed evenly to everybody so for example if you had somebody who's making ten thousand dollars in a year very little very very little like way below the poverty line and you have somebody who's making a hundred thousand dollars a year um both of those people would be taxed, say, I think usually what I come up with when I do these this math um, with the actual numbers of the incomes of people in Canada, um, it comes out somewhere like 30, 35% is a decent thing to like, basically the goal is to get the average, um, it doesn't, this doesn't change the average income, is to get the median income or the lowest income, I guess, the lowest income bracket for adults at the poverty line or just above the poverty line. So basically by definition, lifting everyone out of poverty and if you set that, at, let's make the math easy and say $20,000, um, that effectively means that you're taking that 10, you need that, per, that, that person, that one single person that has $10,000 to have 10,000 extra dollars. And in this two person example, it's very simple because all you really need is a, what is it? Uh, it's something like a 18 or something percent tax, 15, some, somewhere in between 10 and 20% um, income tax at that point. Because basically what you're doing is you're taking, if you say, it, let's say it's 20% to make the math easy again, that means that $20,000 comes out of the, gets taxed on the person that does 100,000 and 20% uh, of 10,000 would be 2,000. So you end up with a pool of $22,000 um, and then person A, the, the richer person has 80,000 left and person B has $8,000 left. And then you redistribute that money equally. So basically splitting it in half. You take 20,000, you give 11,000 to the rich person and 11,000 to the poor person. And now that poor person is at $21,000. No, uh, eight plus 11 is $19,000, I guess. Um, so 20% 20, 20 was not quite high enough. Um, you get $19,000 and then uh, what is it? 80 plus 11 is 91. Um, $91,000. So that basically it ends up working out to about a 10% um, tax on that person. And if you run through this math and you, you tweak the, the, the tax percent um, based on population, you can effectively raise the poverty level. You can raise the, the minimum income that somebody makes 
um, however you want. And you do it kind of in a fair way. And like, if somebody is a millionaire, if somebody has a literal million, literal million dollars, like exactly on the nose with that 20% um, tax thing, um, you end up with, uh, they are charged $200,000, but that still leaves them with 800,000. And the beauty of this system is if you tweak it well enough, if you, if you tweak it properly, um, to say, for example, like you can, you can actually go really high with this and I'll talk about it a little bit later. You can actually go super high with this example. Um, what you can do is tweak the, the minimum income that you would ever, um, be able to have under this system after getting the income that, um, the new income, um, from the program, you'd be able to tweak it so that, um, no person, whether you're middle class, whether you're like the top 1%, the top 0.1%, or whether you're in poverty now under with no basic income, you'd be able to have it so that nobody would, would notice the impact so much that it would change their way of life basically. Um, because with every, um, with every person in this, with, with every, um, tweak of the system rather, um, there is an income where you, and it's usually somewhere on the $50,000 mark or something like that, 40 or $50,000 mark where you pay as that person, that average person pays as much into the system as they get back in, in basic income. Just like that's, that's just how math works. Um, if there's a spectrum of people with enough granularity, someone, someone's paying in, in exactly as much as they get out and that person is going to be okay. And everybody above them, like if the only reason that you could be impacted by this, um, negatively is that is if, um, your lifestyle is too extravagant, like <laughs> everyone can handle this, even if you don't necessarily think you can. Um, the funny thing is that if you start structuring things this way, if, if this is the program that you create, what people will do in order to kind of as, as kind of a loophole, and it's not really loophole as, as you'll see, um, is they will start to give themselves less money because there's less incentive to give themselves more money. If they give them, if they earn a bigger salary, it just means that they have to pay more tax. And so there's, you're kind of disincentivized. There's a balance on there to the, to the kind of salaries you have to, that you are able to give yourself and companies would end up investing more into themselves into their workers first of all but into themselves because there's less incentive for ceos executives and that kind of thing to have these massive and ever increasing salaries and the other thing that could happen um, along with a basic income is if you increase the corporate tax rate at the same amount like the actual tax the corporation pays at the same rate um you end up giving like there's less incentive for companies to just hoard money and there's more incentive for them to actually invest not only in their products in research and development, but into their employees as well. And then those employees have more money, which then gets put back into the basic income system. And, and like it's basically like a rising tide rise, um, raises all boats. The situation, if you play it out in in kind of on an infinite loop, it things become more equal. It's closer to equality of pay, but you still have incentive, like you still are incentivized to work more than nothing because you still get more money for doing work you just don't get nearly as much more um and so like for me personally this maybe this is like maybe i'm very unique in this but this is how exactly how i feel i feel only this way that that i wouldn't work i wouldn't decide not to work because i was going to be making like 20 percent less it doesn't make any sense to me that that over time, people wouldn't feel this way. There might be a psychological effect right at the, the very beginning. But honestly, um, one of the nice things about the system is that you're because we're not doing anything now, you can actually change this. You can actually ramp up the amount of basic income that that is being generated and you can 
the amount that the kind of the lowest um, income earners get um, would start small and rise. So you could actually do a 5% basic income tax and then redistribution um, in the first year. You, you could honestly do a 2%. You could, you could start real small, but you can go 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30. And like within five or six years, you're at 30, 35%. And the minimum income any someone is making is twenty five or thirty thousand dollars. And the nice thing is about this is that it comes with inflation because it's based on percentage. It's not affected by inflation, and you can just keep rising. You can tweak that percentage of basic income tax, and the system just kind of balances itself out. It's actually quite beautiful. It, um, honestly, I'll I'll provide a link to my um, my kind of spreadsheet, my data analysis of this. The the data from Revenue Canada is a few years old. But showing just kind of the the basic income amount that you get based on percentages, it's actually quite fun um, to play with this. But this system is something I care a lot about. I've talked about this for like the last 10 minutes. Um, I could talk about basic income all day. But yes, I strongly agree that there should be a minimum income. And if I was going to implement it or if it was going to be implemented, this is how I would suggest they do it. This is like right up there with ranked balloting um, in elections, in Canadian elections, um, in terms of importance for me. Like these two things, it's basic income and election uh, reform. I really voted. I voted hard for the liberals in 2015, and then they didn't do either of these things despite campaigning on them. They're campaigning on them again. Um, these are two of the biggest things where I'm like, we need like somebody needs a kick in the pants to actually do something that they are talking about. Um, yeah, I don't I don't think there's any political will to do it right now. Either of these things. Um, there's no like mass incentive. I do think that the pandemic should be mass incentive, but it's not for any of the political parties. Um, that being said. I really, I really love the idea, and um, so I'll, I'll put a link to my idea for basic income in the show notes. And last question for today, pretty simple because I really don't have that much to say about it. Um, I basically think that, <laughs> I basically think that um, this is their business, and we don't have anything to do with it. So Proposition Twenty Four on my uh, vote compass is Quebec should be formally recognized as a nation in the Constitution. And the reason that I, so I put somewhat disagree for this. Mostly because I feel like if you're going to become in the nation of Quebec formally in the constitution, like you should just be your own nation. Why be part of Canada if you're going to be defined as a nation of Quebec? It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> um, like you want independence, so be independent. If you don't want independence, then become part of Canada. Um, stop running. Stop having the Bloc Québécois. Stop having all these things that are different, like just because you're Quebec. and. Um, I don't I wasn't actually paying attention. I wasn't old enough to pay attention. If I was even alive, I don't know when the Quebec voting referendum was. Again, this is I'm, I come into these intentionally not knowing anything about um, like the context, because one of the things is like critiquing these questions as I go along. Um, but this proposition basically has no information, no context for Quebec's recognition as a nation. I, this is presumably something that they're fighting for or trying to get recognized um, in the Constitution. I don't think it's necessary. I disagree. I don't strongly disagree. Like I said, if Quebec wants to separate, I think go for it. Like stop talking about it and just do it. Um, I don't know what that process would look like, but yeah, that's basically that's basically it for today because I have nothing else to say on on Quebec. And um, that was Proposition Twenty Four. So I'll be back next week to wrap up. Next week I'll probably I'm gonna try to get this episode out out early this next episode because the election is on Monday or Tuesday the twentieth. I forget what day of the week it is. Um, there's not a ton of time. I think it's Monday. And so, yeah, this has been a really fun series and I'm looking forward to wrapping it up next week. We have questions like um, how much Canada do to reduce greenhouse gas emissions? How high should the federal minimum wage be? Wealthy people paying taxes. Um, yeah, Quebec becoming an independent state. 
So fun follow up on Proposition 24. Anyways, um, I'm going to leave this here for now. Thank you very much for listening. And I will talk to you next time. Bye.